Hey listeners, Sarah Ashley here. Did you know that on November 3rd from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, you guys can help us out with a very important task. If you tweet us at Nerdonomy, we will be playing our Six Degrees of Separation game where you guys pick the celebrities that we link. If you've listened to the show, you know the game, you know how much we love to play that. So you guys are going to be able to help us out and challenge us and try to stump us. We promise we will not be using IMDb or Google whatsoever. And you guys can also give shout outs, ask questions, whatever. You have free reign to drive the show. Again, that is November 3rd from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We will be doing this while we're recording and then we will release the show the following Tuesday. We hope you guys will listen. We hope you'll tweet us. Remember, tweet us at Nerdonomy and mark November 3rd in your calendars right this second. We look forward to talking to you soon. Bye. Sound check. Sound check. Check one. Check one. Sound check. Sound. <coughs> Clonjure repriando. repriando. Uh, what? Brian, are you okay? I don't know. You don't look good. <laughs> you really do not look good at all. No. Oh, oh my, oh, oh God. <laughs> I cannot believe this. You're possessed. You're possessed by a demon. And you're the Catholic. I've been waiting for you, Eric. Oh, this this is this is just great. This is what I needed today. This is perfect. Eric, quick, in my backpack. Yeah, okay. There's an emergency kit. All right. Hurry. Okay. okay. All right. Um, Bible. Got it. And uh, oh, there's already sticky notes. Good. 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 Uh, okay. Exorcism. Exorcism. Your exorcism. feeble attempts will not subdue me. Okay. Well, uh, you take this, then you demon. Um, and the Lord answered, Bring me a heifer three years old, a she-goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Queed. Okay, that one's not going to work. Um, uh, okay. Look, for I have two daughters, virgins both of them. Oh, God, this is terrible. Eric, you're not Catholic enough. You know what? I'm trying, okay? Just let me try. Just let me try. Just... Um, Alright. No, I can do this. Okay. Yet she increased her prostitution, remembering the days of her youth. Oh, God, this is really awful. Alright, uh, screw it. I'm just using my sonic screwdriver. Uh, it's out. It's out. Okay. Eric. Hang on. Yeah. I got it. Wait. I'm holding it with my sonic screwdriver. No, it's not going to be good enough. It's not strong enough. Proton pack. Proton pack. Suck on this. Wait, where's the trap? I got it. Holy crap. Wow. You alright? I'm fine. Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I am Satan. Oh, wait, no, sorry, Eric Brickmont. <laughs> wow. That was a lot of fun. Oh, it? man. That was great. It took us about an hour and a half to do. But That's that was... okay. It was totally worth it. And of course, Sean's editing, phenomenal. But I have to say, 
So much fun. Listeners, I hope you folks enjoyed it. I am still covered in, in vomit, but that's fine. I'm a father. I'm used we, to it. We really, you know, this is just me as an actor, but I really am devoted to, to realism and yeah. performance, so I totally drank like two cans of pea soup before we recorded. We wanted to tweet pictures of the Nerd Cave tonight, and we just can't because it's so obscene. It's disgusting. It's pretty, it's pretty rank. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, I really I'm appreciate sorry, that. But the stains will come out. Well, the carpet's green, so we're fine. If they don't come out, it all blends together. See? Well done. <laughs> wow, this has been just a crazy month. This has been so much fun. I have absolutely loved doing Halloween episodes the entire month. I wasn't sure how it was going to work out, to be totally honest. And it seems that I'm not al- alone in that. Uh, listener feedback has exploded in the past couple of weeks. And we have so much that... I don't think we can read a single email verbatim. No, we can't. We got like seven last week. Yeah, we just don't have time to do it. So, um, obviously, we're going to jump into a little listener feedback now. This week in listener feedback. Oh, love that jingle. Never gets tired. Okay, you want to start? Sure. Our first one we have is from Alicia. Uh, Alicia went on to say that she started listening to the Nerds on History podcast, and she really enjoys it. She loves any podcast that's based on history. Uh, She works at home as a web developer, and uh, our show keeps her entertained and enlightened, which we appreciate, of course. Uh, She also appreciates the passion we have for sharing our stories. And the research is unquestionable to a viewer, so that's good. Good. Fantastic. Good. She did say, though, she had a suggestion for us, which was to... She loves the idea of doing a show on Polish warriors, Polish hussars, and uh, who wore wings on their backs. Ooh. So that's kind of an interesting topic. I think we should go for that. That would be fun. We could do um, the most forgotten about yet most amazing warriors in history. Sure. That'd that be great. would be cool. Yeah. That would be cool. Uh, this one comes from Michelle. Just finished listening to your vampire episode and wanted to recommend a book for you or any listeners interested in learning more about the history, lore, and cultural impact of vampires. It's called Vampire Forensics, and it's written by Mark Colin Jenkins, and is a great resource that melds history, mythology, and anthropology quite nicely. She then continues to talk about uh, the Stephanie Meyer version of vampires. And while she didn't really enjoy the books all that much, uh, if she was going to be a vampire, it would kind of be more along those lines. She has an interesting question for us, though. If you were a vampire incarnation through mythology, well, who would you want to be? That's a good question. Who would you want to be, Eric? I would want to be a, a bloated, rotting corpse. I want to go classic. I want to go. I want to go old right. school. Okay, I, you know. Sure. I, I, hey, you know if that's what floats your boat. I don't need a lovely mansion. Or your just, you know, that's fine. Yeah. Hole in the ground is fine. Cool. Um, probably Dracula. Yeah. Shocker. Yeah. Actually, I would say if it had to be one of the, really one specific character, probably Louis from uh, Interview with the Vampire. Okay. Fair enough. Then I'm going to change mine. Nosferatu. Nosferatu. I always thought I would look pretty neat, bald with large nails. You should do that now. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but I won't. Okay. Martha would divorce me. She wouldn't really do that. She might. I think she'd be into it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, uh, (laughs) Michelle continues. uh, One last thing, you guys, being from the Bay Area, might want to do an awesome episode about the San Francisco earthquake. This is, of course, the Great Earthquake of 1906, which my great-grandfather survived and lived through. My grandfather, even as a young child, had such an impression of it. Uh, being an infant, he could still even remember seeing the glows, uh, the glow in the sky of the fire from from that great earthquake. And I thought it'd be neat if we do this. We should actually go to San Francisco on like a trip, do a nerds on the street segment, and we should visit some of the few remaining places that were left over from uh, when the fire happened. 
Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. We've got one from Margaret, too. Uh, Margaret, very quick, she's a barrier local. But at the time of the writing of this email, she was from uh, in Beijing. She said she was listening to our Egyptian-themed episodes. Yay. And she wants to go to the, with us on the next time we go to the Rosicrucian Museum. So, All right. We got we to gotta plan another trip. I think that we should do it before 2014. Yeah, if we can, sure. That'd be great. And then she also says, hey, I have a Breaking Bad-related podcast, in case you're interested, on Stitcher.com. It's called Gliding Overall, a Breaking Bad podcast. So, great. We'll, uh, we'll have to check that out. I will check it out after I've finished watching the series, because I'm, I'm one of those guys who waits until the very last episode of the series, and then I watch it all in one run. Which has already happened at this point. I know that. Yeah. I just, I'm, I'm still finishing Dexter. Gotcha. So, as soon as, as soon as I finish Dexter, then I'll finish Breaking Bad. Yeah, and she, she, of course, closes with, thank you, and please give up the great work. I'm a real history nerd. So Our next one comes from Oscar. Oscar says that he loves the podcast, been listening for a few weeks, uh, really enjoying the interesting factoids that you guys pull off on interesting chapters of history. Uh, would love to hear a part three of the history of Mexico, focusing a little bit more on the culture of Mexico, and I think that's a great idea. I think we should get Martha back on the show and do a whole episode on that. Uh, after the baby. After the baby. <laughs> Maybe six weeks after that, too. Uh, and then uh, goes on to say that he would love to hear a little bit more about Jonestown. And that would be a very interesting topic, something I'd like to explore, because part of its history is also here in the Bay Area, in San Francisco specifically. Yeah, indeed. Um, and it, it's a very tragic event, obviously, so it won't be the, the most cheerful of podcasts, but it would be an interesting one to do. So... Uh, cheers to you, Oscar. I'd love to, uh, to tackle that subject and uh, I think we'll add it to the list and we'll see it come about eventually. Yes, indeed. We finally have one last piece of feedback from Allison. Allison says she's loving the Halloween episodes. They're awesome. She really loved the vote Gumby for vampire episode. She agrees also, uh, that Stephanie Meyer could have done much better with the way she, she told the story, breaking it down into a more detailed sub story for each Cohen family member or so. Uh-huh. I think I'm onto something. Indeed. Um, she likes to mention, of course, uh, Countess Bathory, Elizabeth Bathory. She is the person who bathed in the blood of virgins. So she apparently did a book report years, a million years ago in elementary school called Vampires and Other Ghosts. And she made a diorama of the countless bathing in blood and bleeding out of virgins. She totally used red jello and Barbie dolls. That is awesome. Wow. That's... She's my hero. Unbelievable. She's also gotten her parents to start listening to the podcasts, which is also pretty sweet. She says, my, my mom loves Sarah and her potty mouth, <laughs> which is great. I think we might have read this on the, on the film podcast, too, but it, it bears repeating. And they both really enjoyed NOF's episode to believe. So that's why we read it, So, uh, mm -hmm. which is our episode on The Princess Bride, my favorite movie, as well as one of Sarah's. She said she will also continue with our sister podcast, Nerds on Film. Uh, she'll promise that she's telling her hipster friends how terrible Nerds on Film is and that no one listens to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best thing you can do to a hipster is say that, do you like everything? No, neither do we. So you just, yeah. Anyway, um, thank you, Allie. Very, very much appreciated. And thank you, everyone who gave us feedback. Ever since, since we got that page back up and running, it's been like constant, constant flood. Of course, we also want to thank our regulars, uh, Dino and uh, Melissa uh, and Cam and all and your Cam, other exactly, folks, yeah. you know, who, who wrote in over the past couple of weeks saying how much you've loved the, the, the episodes. We just, we don't have time to get to all of yours. And uh, we thank you, though, so much again for all of your, your kind feedback. Thank you again to everyone. And uh, shall we get on with the show? 
On with the show. Well, folks, as you know, we've been continuing our month of Halloween-related topics for Nerds on History. So today, we're going to wrap things up for the month by talking about what is clearly the most iconic entity that you can associate with Halloween. And of course, I'm talking about Mini Snickers. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it all changed, really, when Mini Snickers were introduced, when, when a, they came on the There's a study that shows that the correlation between uh, the, the Mini Snickers bars mm-hmm. yeah. and type 2 diabetes, just the, they both skyrocketed at the same time with sales. Yeah, along, along with joy. They along with joy, overlap, indeed. And they just go through the roof, yeah. So, no. Is this no. joke getting old? Yeah. Listeners, is this joke getting old? <laughs> Because we don't care. (laughs) No, what are Uh, we talking about? What are we talking about tonight? Ghosts and demons. Ghosts and demons. But mostly ghosts. And a little bit of demons. Yeah, a little bit of demons. But, you know... But mostly ghosts. They they go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. It depends on your your definition of the word, really. Right? That's that's absolutely right. So why don't we start with that, as we usually do. We define the word in its original context and see how it's changed. Absolutely. Throughout history. So let's find the word ghost, right? What does the word ghost generally mean? Well, we generally refer to it as uh, the spirit of someone who is no longer living. Uh, but it gets even looser than that, though, depending on your cultural persuasion. Right, exactly. Many times it's associated with the remnants of a person who is now dead. Whether it be something that passes over from a spiritual plane of existence, an afterlife, if you will, or it's something that is lingering and stayed around and has never actually moved into the afterlife. It is the remnants of who a person was. You also have the concept, like we talked about for a second there, of a demon. So some sort of evil spirit that has been called forth by whatever means from whatever religion, and it's now taking possession either within a home, like in a form of a haunting, if you will, or in the actual form of a body in terms of of inhabiting and possessing uh, a person. Kind of also, if you want to group them in, the idea of just a spirit, right? So this could also be associated as a as a kind of god. It could be a an entity that has special powers that is neither of those things and doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing either. Some ghosts can have a, a positive meaning behind them. They can be very much a good thing and a helper to a to a community or to an individual. We also have to remember that the word yeah, the word demon itself derives itself from ancient Greek. And it pretty much means the same thing as a ghost. So uh, the connotation for what we call a demon, like you say, has has changed, right? There can be good and it can be bad. Do we actually have the word ghost looked up, the origin of it? We do. So if we look at the English word ghost and we look at the old English ghast, uh, which comes from most likely a dramatic origin, right? So most likely something in the West Dramatic area. Uh, and, and this is oftentimes rooted as meaning kind of fury or anger or rage. It's a very, very spiteful, very vengeful kind of word. And the word geist as well means uh, spirit in in German. So there's more than likely some influence there as well. They eventually kind of became synonymous with one another. Whereas in Latin, spiritus meaning to to breathe or a, a blast of air or a yeah. blast of breath to a uh, respiration exactly right. to exhale to right. to expel your your breath gets kind of tied in with the concept and the idea of a ghost around the ninth century and that makes total sense too when you say to expire last breath right mm-hmm, exactly so and this is this is something that is common across cultures around the world that breathing and respiration are associated with the dead 
uh, the ancient Egyptians saw the nose and the mouth as being vessels for the soul, that it could leave one way and come in the other. Uh, you also find that in China, there's a lot of myth associated around breathing, and, and particularly on a cold night, seeing one's breath being expelled from the body. All of that could be tied in and associated with these gaseous and kind of um, bodiless forms sure. of spirits. And which it also makes sense to why breathing is such an essential part of Eastern meditation and rhythmic breathing and controlling that. Sure, just the fact that you're breathing <laughs> means that you're alive. I mean, sure. without a breath, that last breath, oftentimes, if you think about somebody who's on their deathbed and they <gasps> take one last breath and they usually fill up their lungs as much as they can, <sighs> that's a very dramatic experience that's happening. It's very psychologically impactful, really. Sure. So no surprise yeah. that these words kind of all came to be their current meaning and our current understanding for what a ghost is or could be. So I think we've, we've touched on this a little bit already. We're trying to define a ghost. And when you define a ghost, you really come back to its ancient roots. You come back to something that's very likely prehistoric in terms of our trying to understand it and our trying to, to weave it into our, our existence and our daily lives and being able to explain this supposed phenomena. And that is just association with the afterlife ancestor worship, and the desire for our souls to continue after our death. I mean, you could argue that this is the one binding spiritual belief behind every religious persuasion, that there is something that happens post-mortem. There is some sort of existence that exceeds death. Um, and it's probably the single most ancient belief that everything that we all share, regardless yeah, it, of your persuasion. And it could take on a lot of different forms from around the world, but the, the core belief is a continuation in one way or another. Even atheists who don't necessarily believe in God do, do some believe in existence afterlife, but they think of it more in terms of pure energy, that everything, energy doesn't get created or destroyed, it just exists. And therefore, when the body is decomposing, that's a release of energy. And that becomes something else. That becomes essentially the earth, that becomes the the ground beneath us, it becomes a gas that's expelled into the air. So even atheists, if you can kind of fathom that, believe in the continuation after death. In one form well, or another. Well, what was it that uh, Carl Sagan said? We are all made of star stuff? Yeah, it's true. I mean, everything in the universe is made from all the stuff that was created at those first few moments in the Big Bang. And it continues to exist and it just exists in different forms. As it, as it progresses and changes. Right. So there is there is a science behind that, really. There is some truth behind that. And like you said, it's a unifying kind of truth that kind of comes together to, uh, to all cultures. Well, I think if we're going to, need to discuss uh, ghosts and talking about really the paranormal is what we're, what we're touching upon, um, why don't we make it more transparent where we stand on this? Because I think that'll help understand where we are in the discussion. Great idea. Yeah. Uh, for me, I mean, you guys, it's no surprise for our longtime listeners that I'm Catholic by no means devout, but I am I am a believer, and because of the experiences I've had as a as a child and as a young young adult, I cannot deny the possibility of these things existing uh, of uh, ghosts, demons, demonic possession. If you want to go there, like we did in the cold open. However, I am a skeptic too. I I accept that there are of course there there are alternative explanations, and I think you need to have that because it's very easy to get roped in to concepts that don't necessarily have as much weight as they really give. And you have to look at things as objectively as you can, but be open to, the, to realizing that there could be something beyond what you can explain. But you have to try to explain it first. <laughs> right. And I, I'm in kind of a similar boat as you. 
I am agnostic, so I look at it all from the big picture. I don't follow any specific doctrine or, or religion or creed or whatever, right? I don't, I don't fit into any of those things. I call myself a skeptic believer, which I know is kind of a contradiction in terms, but I am skeptical in the sense that, like you said, I look at everything as logical as possible. I look for a natural explanation first. And then once I've eliminated all of those possibilities, I see maybe there's something that I just don't understand, something that I and everyone around me can't explain. So I can't rule out that it doesn't exist. I just don't know how it exists. Sure. And we've been doing that this entire month when we were talking about vampires and we were talking about monsters and trying to figure out the otherworldly explanations for why people would think these things actually existed, right? right. Same thing is true for ghosts. Yeah, we're, we're applying the same logic, really. Yes. Uh, for me, however, I've actually experienced a couple of things in my life, and I'll talk about them a little later in the podcast, that I can't explain, that I looked for natural explanations around. And the only thing that, for me, works that fits the mold is a ghost. So I've actually had a couple of ghostly encounters, and I'll, I'll talk about those. And I'll get your opinion on it. Maybe you'll have alternative theories for it. Maybe our listeners will, too. Sure, maybe, yeah. But I think what where we differ on this is I'm very much of the classical persuasion where I believe ghosts can be the remnant of, of what is living. It's Whereas, the very ancient belief. So I said yeah. it. Oh, it's, no, the, which is, I mean, really the most ancient belief as we were, we were talking about. Whereas I believe uh, quite the opposite. I believe that it, if a ghost does exist, it's not necessarily the spirit of the dead. In fact, I don't believe it's the spirit of the dead at all. But it could be some remnant of that person, some form of energy that could perhaps be manipulated in such a way that we just are not aware of, that we don't have a science by which to explain. But I think there has to be a scientific explanation for it all. I just think that it's a science that's a little bit beyond our reach. Mongoose equation. Mongoose equation, exactly. The, the guiding principle of my life. But I will say that I am open also to an even perhaps more bizarre explanation for what ghosts could be. And that is, I think there's a very real possibility that the way human beings have evolved, because we are the most evolved sentient species on this planet, right? That there could be dormant areas of our mind, of our brains, that we just don't understand, that could be unknowing to us, manipulating the world around us. And some people will call it psychic powers, if you will. I don't think it's anything deliberate. I think if it does exist, it could be kind of a way of explaining of how ghosts could come into existence and how they could be. And that it could be individuals who are alive today who are creating these things, manipulating them using their minds and not even being aware of it. Now, I know that in of itself sounds almost as far-reaching as the very concept of as, as a ghost. But like I said, it's just a theory. I have no kind of proof for it. But hey, nobody does. Yeah, we all have to find a way to, of explaining things in a way that makes sense to us. Yeah. We've talked about at least the roots of the word and where the belief comes from. Why don't we start diving into uh, the earliest known traditions in cultures where we see ghosts mentioned? Sure, and, and no surprise, those come from some of the most ancient texts that exist in, in the world. A la Mesopotamia. A la Mesopotamia in ancient Egypt, exactly. Um, and the Mesopotamians, of course... This is an area of the world where later Abrahamic religions would eventually evolve. And so it's no big surprise that this concept and idea of a spirit and a soul that inhabited the living body once and now inhabits a whole other realm of existence, an afterlife, would then pass on to those cultures in a very similar fashion uh, in, in many later years. 
And the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians, had a very, very detailed um, belief in an afterlife, particularly the ancient Egyptians, who believed it was more or less an exact duplication and continuation of the living world. It was just created in a realm where you would exist for all of eternity. But it's a little more complex, particularly with the Egyptians, because they saw many different aspects of a soul. Whereas we generally kind of classify it as one, the Egyptians had it all separated into you know five different parts. And one of those parts, the Ba, was thought to be the one that could kind of manipulate and come back into existence in the living world. And there was a lot of fear around this, particularly because ancestor worship, which was key to both the Mesopotamians and the ancient Egyptians, was both a good and potentially a bad thing. You wanted your ancestors to continue existing in the afterlife with the hopes that they would help you out in the living world. They would give you good tidings and blessings and make sure that you are wealthy and prosperous and healthy. But if you ignored them and you didn't follow the traditions and customs, many times associated with the uh, denovation of food, releasing its spirit, if you will, to the spirit world, performing those kind of ceremonies, remembering them, that they could become vengeful and angry and return to the living world and cause the exact opposite things to happen, including possibly your own death. Mm. Uh, so the Ba in ancient Egypt was considered to have been kind of the the part of the soul that could, could eventually do that. There was kind of a unified spirit in ancient Egypt, the Ak, which was kind of the amalgamation of the four other aspects of the soul into one kind of unified and, and continually existing part of that person. But you don't find a whole lot of references to the Ak manipulating the living world. That's just more along the lines of what we would kind of later associate in, in like I said, Abrahamic religions as being a spirit, a the soul of the dead. We also have to talk about another belief at this point in time, which is just acknowledging spirits in your daily life as well. There is, in many ancient cultures, particularly in this part of the world, this belief in uh, animism, meaning that all kind of living things have this sort of sentient nature to them. And I know the ancient Egyptians carried on this belief. I'm almost certain the Mesopotamians did as well. Just that this idea that, you know, animals and plants all had some sort of spirit to them. And that's what really kind of, when you think about it, the foundation of the theologies of these worlds, like, you know, you talk about a spirit of the sky, a spirit of the water, a spirit of, of nature. The Egyptians, of course, had had cat spirits, right? You're thinking of Bastet, yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. essentially. So these all slightly tie into this um, otherworldly kind of notion. Yeah, and it's no big surprise that that's where we still think of ghosts today, because it's so deeply rooted with our ancestors, with our family members who have died. Uh, and you think about all the stories you hear of hauntings, they're always somebody who, who used to inhabit that house. It's not like it's somebody who just randomly came here. Uh, you, you hear about stories of homes being built on top of ancient Indian burials. Of course, yes. Uh, Things that disturb the rest of the dead, right? Exactly. But they're always geographically associated with that area. Some more modern kind of poltergeist stories talk about these, these ghosts moving with families and, and accompanying them to other locations, but almost always there's kind of an origin around that original location. Well, actually, speaking of the whole notion, um, yes, we know we acknowledge that ghosts and belief in ghosts pervades every single culture. Um, the belief that disturbing the dead's rest is more of a Christian concept. Uh, it doesn't come on. Well, I mean, it's it's definitely documented in Christianity. I'll say that it is. But some of the first documents actually come from 
uh, not just ancient Egypt, where you you do have stories about you know guidelines off, for how to bury the dead and things like that. Yeah, exactly, and how not to disturb burials and grave robbers and the the treatment that okay, they were given. Fair enough. Yeah, there's then that's just carried over into the Christian tradition. Sure, I'd say it actually finds its more traditional form in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. There's lots of stories about misburials and. Uh, people just not taking care of grave sites and letting them fall to the wayside, and those hauntings happening as a result of it. Speaking of uh, ancient Greece and ancient Rome, the Orestia, which is the Roman trilogy um, by Aeschylus, uh, which follows basically uh, the story of Agamemnon's family. Agamemnon, one of the characters from the Iliad, if you remember back to sophomore English class, mm-hmm. um, deals with the first time that we know of where a ghost was included into written fiction. And it turns out it's the ghost of, uh, I'm going to say her name wrong, Clytemnestra, who is, I believe, the, the wife of Agamemnon. She, her ghost appears way back in the third part of the trilogy, hmm. which is, we'll see, there's the Agamemnon, the libation, of bear, uh, the libation bearers, and then the Eumenides. This whole plot line deals with lots of themes of the paranormal. I mean, you have Cassandra, who is someone who's trying to talk to the god Apollo, and Apollo is trying to get with her, basically, romantically, and she spurns his advances, so he possesses her and gives her the gift of prophecy, but the curse of it is that no one will believe her until it's too late, hmm. right? So, um, you see even this whole idea of supernatural possession this early on. No, twenty five hundred years ago. Yeah, and, and it's very different than just even shortly before that with Homer's Odyssey and the Iliad, where you have ghosts kind of taking a very different form. They were more spectral. They were more kind of, uh, if you will, detached from the human element, and they weren't really interacting with people. Uh, they were usually called upon for for more of um, prophesizing and things of that nature for for predicting and telling the future and what have you. They were very different than these right. these spirits that kind of end up later on. Sure. And really, the Odyssey is the sequel to this, right? I mean, the uh, really, the Odyssey is the kind of the the spinoff of the, of the Agamemnon, because the Odyssey is how Odysseus gets home from the Trojan Wars. Agamemnon is what happens when he gets home from the Trojan Wars. So this, th- then we'll talk about the Trojan Wars in other episodes, because that deserves it, probably one or two episodes on its own. It is kind of interesting to see how that event sprang forth these two different stories that have similar elements to them. But that just talks about the culture, you know, uh, what unites them together. From there, where do we go? Well, I think Rome, of course, is the natural progression. And and what I find fascinating is some of the the first references, the haunting actual homes, haunted houses, uh, comes to us from two very, very famous authors, uh, in Rome, and this is, of course, Plutarch uh, in the first century, and uh, Pliny the Younger, uh, who, again, are around the same time. Uh, and they described homes, you know, with these very iconic representations of ghosts, particularly Pliny the Younger, who talks about a haunted house in Athens being uh, haunted by a ghost in chains, and that the actual burial itself uh, was a ghost who, or was a, a skeleton essentially that was kind of shackled to the earth using these chains. And the only way to give him a proper burial was to release him of these chains. And it sounds like something that, you know, very, very modern in its storytelling and its mechanics. It's very Dickensian, yes. Yeah, isn't it? Um, well, actually, no, because as far back as ancient Egypt, we we kind of attached ourselves to this belief that when someone dies, whatever state they're in kind of sets Right, and they're almost like this unmoving, 
um, that are in a kind of a sense of stasis, of spiritual stasis, until they can really move on. And that's true, because many descriptions of ghosts around this time include battle scars and wounds and are of that nature and that they are whatever you were like at that time if you were a tortured soul if you're back for whatever reason you're retain that that same appearance i think immediately of uh, in the harry potter stories nearly headless nick right <laughs> uh you know he's got just like an inch of flesh that's keeping his head on his neck um as a good example <laughs> of that well so you also see this in judaism and christianity and we talked about well, really, back when we were talking about witchcraft, right? At the beginning of the, this month, the Witch of Endor. Um, the Witch of Endor. The Witch of Endor. Necromancy, um, right? Ways of calling forth, summoning ghosts, really is what we were talking about, mm-hmm. right? Summoning the dead. That's what we were talking about. We weren't bringing them back to life. We were summoning their spirit. So you see examples of this in the book of Samuel in the Old Testament. You also, of course, get... To, I mean, there's several examples, but you get to the, the big. The big one is uh, in the the New Testament in the Gospels, right? When Jesus reappears to his apostles after the resurrection, he has to convince them that he's not just some ghost; that he is this fully resurrected human being. So we know that whether you want to accept that the Gospels are actual historical fact or not. It does speak to that there's a cultural belief at this time in first century Palestine that ghosts do exist, that there is some form of afterlife, even though the concept of heaven had not been uh, cemented yet until later on when Christianity became its own religion. Yeah, absolutely. But we also see in the Bible and in Christianity, and we'll get to this much later on in the episode, but you also start to see examples of exorcisms, right? Jesus exorcised demons a couple times. And that the prophets were able to exercise demons. Anybody in the Bible who is shown to have tremendous faith um, has been able to wield that sort of uh, the power of God to to wipe away evil spirits, right? And again, we go back to the word spirit. We're talking about what they determine is is, is a ghost, which is what's a demon, and we'll get to that. I think as the perceptions change later on. Yeah, well, I think that that really happens in the Middle Ages more than just about any point in, in European history, anyhow. That's when there's a pretty clearly defined definition between the two, where you have a demon and then you have a ghost. Sure. Well, um, I also think we have to understand for the Christian concept of that, well, there are different forms of spirit, right? We were talking about how there was the jinn last episode, uh, who are essentially the closest thing to what our word for genies is. Uh, our word for genies is the uh, the Arabic word jinn. Sure, and in Islam, they don't have that traditional view of a ghost. The no, closest they get is the jinn. Exactly. But they're, again, a spectral form, right? But at the same time, we also, in all three of the Abrahamic religions, uh, as well as, you know, really in, translate into other faiths too, angels, angels and demons. The best thing that I've heard for definition for it was uh, St. Augustine. He wrote in, I believe it was the City of God, I could be wrong, um, but he was quoted as, as defining what an angel actually was. They said that angel was his is their office, meaning that they're meant to be a messenger, right? Their form is spirit, hmm. right? So they are a celestial body created by God who works on God's behalf. A demon in the Judeo-Christian sense is a angel who has lost their purpose. They've lost their service to God. They're the, they are detached from God. They're tormentors now. They're meant exactly. to, to cause the living to sin. Exactly. So, 
they are still spirit, spectral in form, right? In a way, kind of like what we've acknowledged with the soul yeah. is. Uh, our souls, of course, are bound to our bodies in that mindset. These creatures don't need that. And the Judeo-Christian mindset acknowledges that you don't need a physical body to be a creature. Right. So I guess really in the Middle Ages, what we're talking about is that ghosts are there for a very specific purpose. They have an intent. Whereas with demons are more just malicious for the sake of it. And they're there to torment and do horrible, nasty things. And they can just afflict and affect anybody. Whereas ghosts usually have a very specific plan and goal and oftentimes come back and haunt uh, family members and, and individuals that they had interactions with when they were alive. Sure. And we aren't just simply talking about the devil, right? It's very easy to say that demons are just Satan. Well, Satan's an example. The devil is an example of a demon. Uh, the chief most example sure. of it. And we have demonic possession that goes on around the globe. We have religions that have no connection with Judaism and Christianity and Islam that have these concepts and ideas that exist completely separate from an idea of Satan. But evil demons are still, again, kind of, again, a universal idea that's all over the place. Indeed. And I think the other universal concept is that pretty much every method for expelling these demons involves some sort of religious ritual. Oh, of course. That usually involves prayer, incantation. Oftentimes incense, oftentimes some sort of magical instrument or device, whether that be a crucifix or whether it be some other type of... Christians would be very touchy about you calling a crucifix magical. (laughs) Well, let me... me, me, We're just putting it out there. In an anthropological sense, uh, an object that's been bestowed with a special meaning or power. It may be a crucifix for a Christian. It may be something completely different for a member of a different religion. Let's use the word metaphysical just to be... Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Meant no offense. No, of, course no, oh, of course not, but just, you know. Uh, my bad. My bad, as they say. I don't know who says that. I don't really say that. But anyway, uh, what you have, though, is there's, like you said, some sort of ritual that kind of has to go along with all of this. And they oftentimes include uh, words that are very harsh, very angry to exercise these demons, to get the body to expel them, invoking uh, the the person who's possessed in their emotions and their feelings and their feelings about family members and loved ones and calling up these ideas. This is something that you see all around the world. Also, water. You think of holy water, right? And you think of it being used in this very um, typical sense that you see in all the exorcism movies and all of that and all the actual exorcisms that have happened that the Catholic Church acknowledge and, and admit to. And you see water, again, as a, as a libation, as a, as a sacred device and tool being used all over the globe. Right. Well, I mean, if you think about the symbolism behind water, water is a purifying uh, form, right? I mean, bathing is part of the ritual in Judaism. You had to cleanse your body before you could enter the temple. Way before Judaism, even, even back in ancient Egypt. You know, sure. The priests had whole sections of the temple dedicated just for bathing, and they had to continue to bathe as they moved through different parts of the temple. So it makes total sense that you could use this as a, as a means, and especially ones that you've acknowledged are, are sacred uh, forms of this agent, uh, that you would use that to help expel evil spirits as well. Absolutely. I, I do say, though, the the Christian tradition of exorcism is probably the most well-documented on the planet. I have no refutation to that. <laughs> it, it, it is, yeah. Uh, and it's largely taken on the same concept, even though as you get into the more Protestant forms of exorcism, uh, it does vary a little bit. But mostly it's the same kind of idea. It's a, a series of prayers and a series of you have to reflect upon yourself. To be the exorcist, you have to be in a metaphysical 
state where you cannot be vulnerable. Because the belief is if you go into that sense of exorcism and, and demonic possession without having a firm spiritual resolve, you are opening yourself up for possession as well. So you need to be as firm as you can. If you are a priest, and you usually have to be to perform an exorcism at minimum, um, you need to at least have gone to confession and make sure that any sins that are on your soul have already been absolved for you. You do lots of preparation. You know, If you are a non-Catholic Christian who believes in simply just repenting for your sins in prayer, you need to have a moment of firm contemplation and repentance to, again, to feel that your guilt has been removed from you before you do this. And, um, you know, it's easy for the apostles and Jesus in the Bible just because, you know, him hanging around, Jesus being the, <laughs> you know, being who he claimed to be, you know, it was, it was easy. It was just, no, get out of here and done. And the apostles having the gift of the Holy Spirit, as Christians believe, uh, same thing. You know, they, it's just snap and, and then you're done. Every person with those few exceptions has to have an act of faith where they, they are acknowledging that they are the instrument of God in this sense, the instrument of this good divine force that is going to uh, wash away that spirit. Sure. I mean, if you're going up against Jesus, it's like being a rookie up at the plate and you're going up against Babe Ruth, you know? Sure. <laughs> you're gonna, you're, you might be a really good player, and I'm sure you can get lucky if you got lots of practice, but Babe Ruth is just a natural. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, in the Catholic Church, even to this modern day in the 21st century, we deal with demonic possessions. Uh, it is still a fully recognized right in the church. There is the right of exorcism. It is not considered necessarily a sacrament, um, but it is definitely practiced. It was revised in Vatican II. Um, many more traditional Catholics and those who are uh, specialists in exorcism acknowledged are really not happy with the the way it changed because they, they feel that the new prayers are actually not as effective as uh, they were before. <laughs> it's kind of funny. It's kind of like that same... A mindset you have when you, you you give an old person a new piece of technology, and you're like, <laughs> like uh, what's people been going on with iOS seven on uh, the Apple iPhones? You know they're talking about oh this this thing sucks. The other one was so much better, and it's just change more yeah. more than likely. You know, um, it's the same goal. It's the same thing. It has the same outcome. It just has a slightly different look to it. Sure, sure. And what I find interesting is, do you know who uh, Gabriel Amorth is? I do all? not. Gabriel Amorth, let me make sure I'm getting his name correctly. Yes, Gab Ga sorry, Gabriel. Gabriel Amorth uh, is a Catholic priest who lives in Vatican City, and uh, he is under the jurisdiction of the Diocese of Rome, i.e. the Pope, <laughs> right? Because the Pope is the Bishop of Rome. And he claims that he's performed, uh, according to this article from the Huffington Post, I believe, is what I'm looking up here. He says that he has done over 160,000 exorcisms. He That's says, a lot of exorcisms. It is. Many of them, he says, are brief, only a few minutes long, but some can take hours to perform. And he's, and what does he do? Does he line them all up and then he just kind of goes down the line? He's considered the church's leading exorcist. Um, well, he better be with that kind of record. Right. Um, little known fact, the Pope can also be called upon to do exorcisms. I mean, I don't think any of them are, have ever been publicly announced. Those are only for celebrity exorcisms. <laughs> I have very, very good and reliable sources that he was uh, called forth with Lindsay Lohan on no less than three separate occasions. <laughs> yeah, exorcism via the phone, uh, <laughs> via cell phone. Amorth is a very interesting guy. He's definitely of the old guard in the church. Um, very old school 
kind of hates the Harry Potter movies because it thinks it glorifies his magic, and he believes all magic is a, is a path to the devil. Whoa. Um, yeah, he's a little old school. He's a little old school, believes that Ouija boards, superstition, all these things can lead to that. And he says that what's the, what is the reason for why there's been so much possession in this nowadays is a lack of faith, is his, is, is his uh, mindset. What I do find interesting is that when you put in a, in a request to your diocese to have a priest uh, do an ex- exorcism, first of all, not every priest can do one. You actually have to be trained as an exorcist. The pastor at my Catholic school was trained as an exorcist. He, I, I never heard of him having to do one, but he was trained when he was in, uh, going to uh, school in Rome. He learned how to do it. I hear it's a lovely three-day training course at the Hyatt. It, it really is, and you know, it's all hands-on. So it's it's you no, know, it's very very effective. Yeah, I'm totally kidding. I have the no idea. The brunch is legendary. I do know that there is a school within the Vatican. Uh, I don't know if I want to say the word school. I shouldn't say that, but there is a program within the Vatican that you do get trained to to perform these things. And uh, you need to be an expert in this before you go forward. It said it's not uncommon. Morth has said that uh, on some of his exorcisms that it's not unlike uh, to have six or seven uh, assistants who are holding down a person who is possessed because they can show such signs of strength um, that they need to be. They, they need that many people. Now, there are other scientific explanations for why people don't believe possession needs to exist Yeah, it's nowadays. called adrenaline and mental illness. When they combine together... Sure. And you put them in essentially the the most charged atmosphere of religious belief that you could possibly create, I can guarantee you, you will create an exorcism yeah, just by people, starting one. And some people believe that, too. Um, there is an article from LiveScience.com that talks about the facts and fiction behind exorcism. Now, they, being the more skeptical-minded, will acknowledge that it may very well be uh, more of a, of a trance-like piece of hypnotic suggestion. But if you believe you're open to it and that you are, you may just be convincing yourself that you're under some sort of uh, suggestion by the exorcist in question. Really, it's just a more powerful hypnotist being able to convince you otherwise that you're being relieved of that of that burden, right? Here's the thing when you see science and religion collide like this. The church is fully aware of moderate advances in psychology. So they, they recognize that. And in fact, because of that, they have been more stringent about what constitutes a demonic position and therefore what necessitates an exorcism. So um, it is very firmly understood by the church that there can be no signs of mental illness with this person before they start to rule that out. Because they acknowledge that medicine does exist. There is psychological medicine. You want to bring in a psychologist first to confirm that there's not something else that they can't treat beforehand. That being the case, there are still many exorcisms that are performed each year in the, within the church. One of my favorite exchanges in the movie The Exorcist uh, is when, was it Father Damien? I think he's the, the primary figure in the movie. Uh, Father Damien is, was the priest who lived with lepers in uh, Hawaii. Uh, his name is Father Lancaster Marin. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, I will say this, no joke, Gabriel Amorth's favorite movie is The Exorcist. The reason why, he said, is the most accurate depiction of an exorcism that he's ever seen on film. Though he does say he does admit that the special effects in the movie are a bit overdone. Of course. The exact process of what happens yeah. and what occurrences took place, because it is also based on a true story. He says that's the closest thing it's gotten to it. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that exchange, though, that he has at some point in the movie. I don't remember precisely when, obviously. I don't remember the character's real name, but be that as it may, 
he's talking about how exorcism has evolved since the Middle Ages, right? They're not just there to to go on a witch hunt. They're there to rule out first any kind of psychological problems that are going on. In fact, that he himself is trained as a as a trained psychologist. And only then, once they're sure, then they move forward. And obviously he goes in there and she starts throwing up pea soup and all sorts of stuff. But so that, that that's what pushes them over the, the edge. But uh, I, I do appreciate that. And I believe that that is very true to the actual um, act of an exorcism. That that's, that's kind of the steps they take and the words they say and the tools they use. Of course, obviously, there's so much fantasy involved with all that. Because let's face it, if you've ever seen video of these exorcisms yes the people are acting very violently yes they have incredible strength yes they might even be speaking in seemingly in languages that uh, they didn't know previously or so they claim but they're not turning green their eyes are not turning yellow they're clearly not producing the kind of like you said special effects in the movie uh, well, actually, that part was not what he was. He took issue with. <laughs> it was the objects that were floating around and flying around on its own. The the vomiting up strange things actually does happen. Uh, he talks about this in an interview that he gave to ABC News a couple years ago. Kind of odd. He keeps a, a sack, a little pouch of the things that people have vomited up. Um, it's because he says because he says it doesn't scare him at all. What a strange collection. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it does. It that is. needs to be a Discovery Channel show. <laughs> In fact, yeah, he's been quoted as saying there are times where he says they choke up nails or shards of glass. Yeah, but I've seen people do that on Ripley's Believe It or Not. Sure. So the question is, did they swallow them? Was the demon making them swallow them before they were being vomited back up? I mean, are they producing it out of thin air? Probably not. No, I think that the person is consuming it beforehand. And if you're in an unbalanced mental state, it's not beyond the realm of possibility to suggest that you're going to do things like that. Eat yeah. strange objects. And like I said, people do it as a sideshow at uh, the so-called freak shows at, at carnivals and what have you. There are people who, who eat this stuff and the stomach lining and intestinal lining is actually pretty incredible it, it can resist a lot of that and it can resist the process even during the regurgitation especially if it's accompanied by things like bile and stuff like that sure sure so yeah anyway that part actually has some basis in reality so yes yeah head spinning around backwards probably not i don't think so yeah don't. i don't think that's i think that's probably a little too far uh, uh you because think? the neck does snap at some point <laughs> right yeah so at that point the movie would have just ended yeah that would have been disappointing. Yeah. At that point, I'm pretty sure the priest might have uh, crapped his pants. I <laughs> uh, said, you know what? I'm sorry. <laughs> and then no, he wouldn't have done that. He really wouldn't have. But he probably would have run away. It would have been shocked, to say the least. But of course, I mean, even though exorcisms you know, are probably one of the most ancient practices of evil spirit expulsion, really contacting the dead or contacting the, the other plane of existence for whatever you want to call it, has really shifted and we do see something very unique to take place in the modern era yeah i mean just before we get to that point even it kind of lays the foundation for it because whereas in the middle ages we were talking a lot about exorcism and it being a very physical thing there, there were even ghosts who were thought to have been able to be wrestled down that they took on a much more uh, material existence that they were more physical that they could actually manipulate objects and that they were 
seen as these full body apparitions, but not just as a as a wisp of of air or smoke, but they could actually be physical beings in our in our world. That kind of shifts and changes as you move into the Renaissance into a period of enlightenment. And now you have a that that whole different perception coming about. Now we kind of push aside these these poltergeists, if you will, these ones that can manipulate the physical world, and they kind of return back to this idea that they are are strictly the souls of the dead who have come forth, who are usually, again, associated with some sort of tragedy, whether it be a, a tragic death or the loss of a loved one, or two hearts that are separated. And this is really interesting, because once you have the 17th and 18th century kind of come around... The, with the I, rise in romanticism. Exactly. Then you have that being reflected with, with ghosts as well. And people are now telling stories and, and writing quite a bit of literature about uh, tormented souls that have been separated from their loved ones, and particularly couples that have been separated. And there's uh, stories told all throughout England, uh, which I think is fascinating about how essentially if you were not given permission by the person on the deathbed to move on and have a relationship with somebody else, they were for sure coming back to haunt you. This is <laughs> yeah. a conversation my wife and I have had. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Um, yeah, and we talked about this um, in the vampire episode, the Bride of Corinth, mm-hmm. right? The Bride of Corinth was the, from this exact era in time, the, the poem about the, the lost love who comes back because she wants to be with her man. And this is where you see children also being a big focus of ghost lore and myths and stories now. Uh, children who died in tragic ways, who now return to, to kind of haunt the homes, but in a more playful manner. Many times they're not associated with being evil or mean, tormented spirits, but they're just kind of lost children. And those stories continue on into into modern ghost lore and, and legends and myths today. So it's interesting to kind of see a real quick and abrupt change. And it's almost kind of like demonic possession took over that, again, more hostile physical aspect of ghosts. And then it allowed the the more uh, friendly aspect of the ghost, if you will, the Casper effect. Let's just thank call you, it that. thank you. Thank you. If you weren't going to say it, I was going to. <laughs> and with that, again, that that desire to communicate with the dead, like you were talking about. And with that, you have spiritualism that kind of comes into existence, which is a really fascinating religious movement. That In a way, it is actually kind of a softer form of necromancy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it kind of is <laughs> spiritualism. The softer form of necromancy. I think that was on some of the pamphlets that they were handing out at the time. That, that, that sounds familiar. I'm thinking I'm yeah. channeling history again. You know, I'm not dealing with the death of my dog too well. Oh, you should try necromancy. No, I think it's, I don't have the stomach for it. Have you tried spiritualism? <laughs> <laughs> I hear it's a lot softer on the palate. <laughs> I will say, though, it is, it's an interesting belief system. And it's very closely tied to the Protestant beliefs of Christians in, in America. Uh, where it got its start, really. Uh, and you'll find that um, this very familiar scene that we see from a lot of movies and, and popular uh, culture today about people all sitting around in a seance, uh, holding hands and attempting to communicate through the, the presence of a medium. Right. right. Well, the word seance, I believe, is uh, derived from, from a French term. Yeah, so the, the word actually seance itself comes from the French term for either uh, like a sitting or, or a session, basically. And you do start to see evidence of this as far back in as, I would say, the late 1700s in Europe. It was not uncommon to start to be developed, developed, I think, right before the French Revolution, if I'm not mistaken. There's a great movie 
It was from the mid-90s. Jefferson in Paris, have you heard of it at all? No, I haven't. It starts uh, very odd casting. It's Nick Nolte as, uh, as Thomas Jefferson, but he does a great job in it. Hmm. And uh, there's a scene where they, Jefferson is, is observing a seance taking place, and it turns out that this whole scene was entirely all parlor tricks. They were trying to you know, convince people that they could contact the dead. But anyway, that's where that comes from. So, Yeah, and, and you find that for over 100 years, it really gained in popularity to the height of its membership, where they think in around 1887, there were nearly 8 million followers of spiritualism. And it was a very true monotheistic religion. They even had Sunday meetings, they sang hymns. Uh, it was very much, like I said, based off of that kind of Protestant archetype. But obviously, the role of the priest was kind of replaced, if you will, by the presence of the medium. And the the way that you were connecting with God was more so connecting with the spiritual plane and connecting with these entities that existed on the spiritual plane. Right. And these are also, I think, pop up with the rise of the cultism, too, right? Because sure. the cultism was very prominent in the mid to late 1800s. And more importantly, I think more interesting is to see how it kind of ended, right? Because how, how did it bust? One of the biggest people who busted this was, again, in the 1920s, and it was our old friend Harry Houdini. Some argue that it was because when he went to a medium to see if he can contact his mother, who had died very uh, quickly, and without him being present, um, that he saw all the magic tricks being used, and that he was his job was just to defraud all these people. Um, who were playing with people's minds? He felt he felt like it was just true manip- manipulation and and very very wrong. Some people even have conspiracy theories that it was spiritualists who kind of saw to Houdini's untimely end. But there, which we proved no, on a previous episode that 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 itself is a myth. Yeah, there's no evidence of that whatsoever. He died of a burst appendix. So. Uh, I will say, though, that their philosophies and ideas were definitely very reflective of the time. Uh, Women's suffrage, uh, the abolishment of slavery, these were all things that were very heldly believed by these individuals. And to them, that reinforcement of this good moral conduct was not happening by the living, but rather by the dead. And many times this was a a message that was being delivered by these mediums, uh, that these people who had died now have a whole different perspective on the world, and people should be treating each other a lot better because they believe that uh, that was God's will, that that was God's wish. Hey, 8 million people believing that uh, women should have equal rights and that uh, slavery was a terrible thing, that's not a bad thing in my book. The, The methods by which they went about to kind of promote the religion, however, like you were saying, you know, Houdini debunked a lot of the tools and techniques that the mediums were using to create this more um, uh, mystical environment. Obviously not cool. And of course, it would eventually die out as a result of that. But it's interesting, though, because we still see some of this today, right? You see this in television shows. You see this, like, in, in the television show Medium. You know, it goes back to Niccolo Machiavelli. He said it was easier to convince you that you were sent from God than to actually be sent from God. Um, I think that's what, that's what the armed prophet, I believe is what it was, said. You know, the ends justify the means to some people. Absolutely. And, and I think that uh, perhaps today, more than any other period in our history, ghosts have become kind of accepted. There are approximately between 35 and 40% of Americans who believe that ghosts are real. And there are, you know, obviously people around the world who share this, a very similar idea and thought. So I, I'm not beyond the, 
I, I don't know what the statistic worldwide is. I don't think there's any way to really classify that because there's so many different interpretations yeah. of what a ghost is. Sure. I mean, I wouldn't say for certain, but I would I would probably argue that you don't see that number start to go down until really the rise of modern science, which is, again, around, around the same time period, uh, in more the late half of the 19th century. Yeah, but I'm talking about 35 to 40 percent of Americans today. Sure. And I'm sure that number it. was higher before <laughs> before the, the rise of modern science. Difficult to say. I mean, we don't really have yeah. the statistics for it. Uh, I almost think that, again, modern science could help us explain what ghosts were. But of course, there's a lot of debunking that kind of goes into that. We'll touch on that in a second. I do want to acknowledge the fact, though, that there are ghost stories from around the world and gosh you know i wish we had more time i wish we could do a two or three parter on ghosts because some of the most interesting stories around ghosts come from china they come from india they come from mexico uh and i would love to in a future episode probably next year when we do another month of of halloween because i think we're gonna have to this has been really really successful i think that we'll have to explore that aspect oh, of it uh, no doubt no doubt maybe some storytelling is uh, is due uh, but I will say that uh, the idea of spirit and ancestor worship continues to this day. You see it in Mexico and China in particular, where whole festivals and holidays are created around this concept. Of course, El Dia de los Muertos. We talked about it last year on uh, the Curse of the Podcast. And also, we talked about Salin, too, right? Which is the ancient Celtic holiday. And the annual ghost festival in China that's observed by millions and millions of people uh, all comes back to ancestor worship and the idea of leaving behind uh, food prayers and, and food, food and sure. other items, uh, little sugar candy skulls in Mexico, uh, you know, right. all, all of that, that heralds back to the ancient traditions that are still around today, which I think is really cool. What I think would be neat for us to kind of finish up the show with Finish up the month with, really. Finish right? up the month, that's right. Is Let's talk about ghosts, and let's talk about the plausibility. Because we've talked about the mongoose equation on this on the show before, and I think that considering how important this topic is, it deserves to be uh, analyzed a little scientifically. We looked at the history. Let's look at the science, kind of, behind ghosts. Okay. So, like I said, I take a more scientific approach to it. I think that, again, there are many people in the world who believe in the, the spirits of the dead as being exactly that, spirits of the dead. I believe that there are some sort of manipulation. And I think there's a lot of science that kind of is starting to move in that direction. There's a whole other amount of science that disproves it. And I was talking to you earlier. I thought, wouldn't it be cool? You see all these ghost hunting shows and stuff on television. Wouldn't it be neat if you had a group of people who came into a haunted location, but the first thing they did was look at the architectural layout of the entire building. Let's find out how old the plumbing is. Let's find out how old the electrics are. Where is the uh, you know, power box, the electric box for the house located? What sound does it make when you know a fuse is blown or when lights are switched on or what have you? These are all these unexplained sounds that can happen throughout a home. Electromagnetic fields. You see this on ghost hunting shows all the time. They, they use these little spikes in the electromagnetic spectrum to explain the presence of ghosts. But there's a lot of things that create electromagnetic fields. A lot of things in your home that do that. Well, in the age of Wi-Fi and iPads and Playstations and all these cool little wireless electronic devices, yeah, each and one of those has, is emitting their own electromagnetic pulse. Yeah. And not only that, but low-frequency sounds can also have a really interesting effect on your environment. So let me ask you a question. You've, you've, you've seen shows like this on TV and stuff, Yeah, right? to a degree, yeah. And you've seen a lot of movies around ghosts, so you know these, the, the kind of ghost lore and culture. Sure. 
what is oftentimes a company or what oftentimes happens before the appearance of a ghost or before the the ghost makes itself undeniably known what are the kind of feelings that people generally have generally there's an emotional feeling of of uneasiness but i think one of the most common things it's like it's the sixth sense it's that people feel very very cold yeah they feel cold they get chills maybe they feel anxious or nauseous is something that's oftentimes reported uh they kind of see things out of the corner of their eye honestly a lot of this can be explained totally naturally. So low frequency sounds between 7 and 19 hertz can cause auditory hallucinations. They can cause you to feel and think that there's something in the presence of you. Uh, They can cause you to be nauseous. They can cause you to be irritable. In the presence of high electromagnetic fields, uh, they can cause you to be uh, highly, highly agitated, feeling unexplainable senses of dread, and even have chills run down your spine. These are all things that have been proven through experimentation that two things that are commonly found in people's homes uh, can explain these feelings of, of, of ghosts. So with that said, can that explain away all of these ghost sightings and experiences that happen? I don't think so. I mentioned an experience that I had a long time ago, uh, and I want to kind of share that with you now. So no surprise, I used to work at the the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum, but we also had a planetarium uh, just adjacent to that, and I would oftentimes do the planetarium shows. And then, as was common afterwards, I would make sure the building was closed out and all of our visitors and guests had left. So I'd have to do like a little security sweep around the building. And there was an old, old story that had been told Uh, about a security guard who had gone into the women's restroom many years ago doing the same exact process that I was doing that day. And he didn't think anyone was in the building, but he came across this woman who was standing in front of the mirror. And of course, he was startled, and he was like, oh, my goodness, I'm sorry, I didn't know anyone was in here. I'll wait till you're done. He goes outside, he stands right in front of the door and keeps an eye on the door, as he's trained to do, and he waits maybe five or ten minutes, and this lady's not coming out. So he's thinking, "Uh oh, something's wrong. So he knocks on the door, no response, walks inside, and she's gone. And it's not like he went inside and she slipped out after him. When you walk into that room, you see stalls to your right and you see the sink to your left. And you walk down the length of the stalls, which is only three stalls in, and that's it. There's no window. There's a window, but it's about 12 to 13 feet high, uh, above you. So unless this, what she reported was a little old lady with some sort of Olympic... Uh, sprinter in her younger days who could who could jump in great leaps and bounds i don't think that was happening Hmm. and he was so frightened by this experience that he quit the next day wow now me not having heard this story previous to my own encounter i was doing the exact same process only at that point it had been converted into the men's restroom they kind of switched after we remodeled and i went in there and i instantly felt this feeling on the back of my neck and very quickly it was accompanied by it was kind of like a warm feeling and it was accompanied by this and i heard and felt a breath on the back of my neck and my first thought was okay it must be the air conditioner or something like that but the way i was standing the vents were so high up they were nowhere near me there was no way that i could feel that kind of breeze and they weren't even turned on i mean this was winter so the ac wasn't even on at full blast you know and it was really scary Uh, I remember being really freaked out. I didn't quit, but I was pretty freaked out. Interestingly enough, that same exact building, this was maybe a year or so later, after I kind of put the whole incident out of my mind, 
I was uh, closing up. And in the auditorium where we present the show, there's an area, there's a little secret door that leads to the electrical room right behind me. And I was turning off all the breakers and shutting off all the equipment. And as I was getting ready to leave, I turned off the light. And as I was getting ready to open the door, I saw a little orange ball of light pop up out of the ground or out of the floor, do this little very deliberate kind of zigzag movement, and then literally fall into the floor and disappear. It was weird. I've heard this story before, but my first reaction was, wow. (laughs) My first reaction was, where the hell did that reflection come from? Because I thought something was reflecting that was causing this. But the more I thought about it, I thought, okay, well, this was producing its own light, and it moved in a very strange and very deliberate fashion, not like a reflection which would streak across the room and maybe be reflected a few more times by other objects. This was really bizarre. And I sat there trying to explain this to myself for a couple of minutes. I mean, I left the room and then I sat down. I should say I was kind of freaked out. And I came back and I was like, I have to try to recreate this. And I probably spent maybe 10 or 15 minutes after that trying to recreate the experience. And I I remember hearing something about a phenomenon called ball lightning that occurs that can happen even on a sunny day like it was that day. Uh, But it's oftentimes observed outside. Sometimes it can be seen inside buildings, but it's a very different kind of phenomenon than what I saw. I had heard stories from other people of the same exact experience, seeing a little orange ball of light literally kind of floating around. And the chances of ball lightning happening in the exact same way for more than one person who are totally unrelated in their stories. I mean, I got tons of other things that have happened in that park that were really bizarre and weird. But I'm not alone in that. My other members of my family, who will remain unnamed, have also kind of had experiences with ghosts and spirits. Martha and her family have had sometimes violent experiences. Uh, Martha once had a hairdryer thrown at her from absolute wow. spontaneous I mean it was it was sitting there and before she knew it it was flying across at her and it wasn't like it fell off and then stumbled on the ground and hit her it had movement all sorts of really weird things have gone on in a house that their family owned in Mexico uh, and uh, trying to explain this trying to explain it with science I mean we talked about some of the natural explanations that can cause this even shifts in pressure Inside homes can cause doors and things like that to shut on their own or close on their own. Uh, That can easily be explained away. Creating these so-called fear cages using uh, electromagnetic fields and low-wave audio. Those, again, can explain things. But there are some things that, unless you experience it yourself... You just won't be able to explain. Yeah. And I'm fully open to the idea, like I said, that maybe there's some sort of dormant part of our minds that we just don't understand that's manipulating energy in a way, again, that we don't understand, that we don't have a way of explaining. So science might not have all those answers for us just yet, even though a lot of these things can be explained away. Sure. Well, I can't say that I've had any uh, ghost stories to share. My friends have, though, and my mom has shared some experiences with me that I can't explain. I've had religious experiences I can't explain, but I don't think that's this is the venue for that, because I think it's a little bit different. Um, but as far as your connection with whether it's energy or people, we've both kind of agreed that there are some things that just science can't prove. And what you want to make of that is against your own prerogative and your own, and your own belief structure. But clearly it's not something that is only one person feeling. It's something that millions, if not billions of people have felt and will continue to acknowledge as our culture goes on. Yeah. 
And again, I, I just want to say, as a skeptical believer, I, I do definitely say a lot of these things can be explained away. S- sleep paralysis is another thing. You hear these stories about people who are petrified with terror and fear and they can't move, their bodies are locked. That is an actual biological uh, explanation for that that goes on. This is a real phenomenon that happens to people, and it's it's purely biological. It's nothing to do with spirits. But watching a hairdryer fly across the room at you, no biology is explaining that. That yeah. is that is pretty incredible. Martha's had situations uh, where in that house, every single uh, cupboard door has been opened, and all of the stools in in the kitchen that were around the the island were in the center of the room in a circle. Hmm. And I, I know the family. I know someone's not going in there and opening everything up and doing that. I know that for a fact, because I could see the look of terror on these people's faces as they were describing this to me. This is not something that, you know, I know these people, I've known them for years. Things like that can't be explained away by breezes and, and changes in pressure in a home. Hmm. With that said, though, I still have a call. If you are a television producer and you're looking for a great show and you want to jump on the whole ghost bandwagon... I say you get a bunch of scientists together, real scientists who are skeptical but open to the idea of ghosts. You have them come in. The first thing they do, again, look at the uh, architectural layout of the building. Find out if there's any of these so-called fear cages that are being created. Find out if there's any kind of history of hallucinations, sleep paralysis, any other kind of medical conditions that could explain what people are seeing and hearing. Uh, again, have a look at the the way the house is designed and the weather conditions in which these events are occurring. And if you want to look at temperature and things like that and look at those anomalies, go for it. Some of those might explain settling of house and different sounds that are being created. But do it from the idea that, yes, we're here to debunk the ghost, but what if some of these explanations that are happening are, in fact, paranormal? And if that is the case, can we actually capture any scientific proof of them happening? Can we can we prove with science that perhaps ghosts do exist? That would be a show that I would watch. Yeah, and if we can prove, that would be uh, a major discovery. Major, huge. huge discovery, exactly. One that could change human civilization forever. Yeah. Let me close by talking a little bit about Halloween, if it's okay. Sure. Um, folks, we've really had a lot of fun doing this this month, as Eric said earlier. And we want to just you know put a reminder out there, if you were interested in learning about the history of Halloween, we have our podcast from a year ago. Uh, I can't remember the number, but it's The Curse of the Podcast is the title of the episode. It is still available on iTunes and on our website, neuronomy.com, where you can go and uh, check that out, as well as all of our other wonderful content on that site. And uh, from all of us at Nerdonomy, we really want to wish you guys a very happy and safe Halloween. Um, If you are a youngin', uh, please make sure you're with a, a adult supervisor and that you don't go dashing out in traffic. That would be bad. Make sure you got a flashlight. Please be safe. Parents, please watch your children closely, of course. And don't believe in candy myths. We dispelled that last time. Let your kids eat candy. It's okay. If you yeah, want to it's examine fine. the packaging to make sure it's not old, that's fine. But people are not putting razor blades in your, in your kids' candy. That's don't, true. Don't, don't worry about that. Yes, indeed. And, of course, if you are going to a Halloween party, um, if you do drink, please, for the love of God, don't drive. Yep. Get a buddy. Have a designated driver. Take a cab. Cab drivers need money. And you know what? That's a great night for them. And besides that, they have stories to tell. It's like, I just drove home Scooby-Doo. <laughs> <laughs> he was very drunk. <laughs> and he may have vomited in the taxi in the car. <laughs> 
pea soup. Um, I will say again, Brian, thank you so much because this month was, I think, inspired partially for both by both of us. One of them, again, I want to just, I know I've talked about it a couple of times, but again, this month was for my uncle Fran, who loved this kind of stuff. These are the things that he would want to hear. And we did this month in honor of him. But, you know, when we were kind of brainstorming what we we're going to do, you really came up with the idea, hey, what if we did an entire month of Halloween? And I want to thank you for that, because I think it is kind of brave for us to kind of stretch out and try new things. And it has just been such a re- renowning success. So uh, thank you for, for the idea. And thank you, Uncle Fran, for uh, helping to further inspire and move along this whole month. Because We hope uh, wherever you are, sir, that you uh, have enjoyed listening to us talk. Oh, he approves. Hmm. I can guarantee it. He approves. Uh, and listeners, give us your feedback. Let us know what you loved about this month. Let us know what you didn't. Let us know what you want to hear from us next year. Let us know what we missed, too, please. We always have many years of Halloween episodes to go for from here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of which, by the way, other than going to our web- wonderful website, please check us out on our social media. Um, you can find us on Facebook, of course, and on my Twitter account. I'm at Brian Moriarty. I'm at the Brickmont. And, of course, the company Twitter is at Nerdonomy. And please give us a donation. We promise we won't use it for Halloween candy. I promise. We need to clean up all of this pea soup vomit. And there's a lot. Uh, that and we need a ceiling. Yeah, we need a ceiling. That would be more important. I think. It's getting colder now. It is getting colder now. Now yeah. we're having the opposite effect where the nerd cave was an oven all summer long. Now it's going to be an icebox. Yeah. And you no, know, if we can't afford a ceiling, we will certainly use them on Snuggies. That's for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love Snuggies the camo and Snuggies. <laughs> That's my favorite. Uh, yeah, I think my stepmom loves the leopard print one the most. Make me get some custom Nerdonomy Snuggies. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Can we get that done? Probably. We'll see. We'll see Probably if it's in the budget. Do that, we'll see if it's in the budget. No, yeah. Anyway, guys, until next time, stay nerdy and tune in next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Bye-bye. Well, you want to get some chow, man? Uh, yeah, I could eat. Oh, God, not you, too. Semenefenest. Erneinu her menatiaf heru perewien hesaknesakant. Oh, God, not you, too. Sounds like ancient Egyptian. Oh, crap. Eric's possessed by an Egyptian demon? Yeah. All right, folks. Here we go. Dominus exceptitum nomine es e protestas Christi How did you know Latin would work on an ancient Egyptian? Eh, I just winged it.